Hey, this is Kevin Weatherby at Save the Cowboy. I want you to tow that stirrup, throw a leg over the candle, take a deep seat, and pull your hat down tight. I ain't gonna tolerate no whining or griping, so let's all strike a long trot down that narrow trail and learn how to ride with God. Come on! What you waiting on? Let's go. Me to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. Today, we start a brand new exciting series not unlike what we did in Daniel and uh, Ezra and Nehemiah and stuff like that. We're taking a big, big overview of maybe not the details of the stories, but how those stories fit into God's kingdom and his plan for everybody. Genesis actually means, if you were to look the word up in Hebrew, it means beginnings. And I think that that is wonderful because uh, in the first three words of most Bibles, it says in the beginning, in the beginning, in the Genesis, okay? The Torah is, and that's what we're going to be studying is the Torah. The Torah is the first five books of what we call our Bible, okay? And they explain the whole Hebrew of what God expects from his chosen children, okay? Chapters 1 through 11 cover creation and, and things leading up to chapter 12 and starting in chapter 12 and moving on to the end of the end of the book is the story of Abraham and how God chose one man to become the father of a nation, a race, a literal race, not just an identity, a race of people that God was going to call his own. So the Torah is Genesis Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And I know, I know how many times you've tried to read your Bible. And I know that you do pretty good through Genesis and Exodus. And I also know that when you get to Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy, you fast forward like everybody else does, <laughs> right? I get it. I get it. But there's a reason that that stuff is there. And my, I also say that it is somebody else was hiding behind my light. It's always good to have people from my hometown of Big Lake, Texas with us today. Welcome to Bill, Billy Hal and Terry Arnett. So thank you all for being here today. They're up visiting family and we share a family because they're Niece is, my, is married to my brother. So it's kind of like we family. If you come from Big Lake, Texas, all of us are family. So it's always good to have somebody from my hometown here. But anyway, so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy is called the Torah. Now, right before Jesus came, around 185 BC or so, there was a group of religious people, scholars, called the Pharisees. Okay, and in order to be a Pharisee, you don't hear about them in the Old Testament because that, that, sec, that group of them hadn't come to power yet. But the Pharisees, in order to become a Pharisee, you had to memorize every single word in Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, right? Listen, the Pharisees get a bad rap 
but they knew the Torah. The problem is they knew the words of the Torah. They didn't see what it pointed to, right? With the law and stuff like that. So I want you to understand that while it may seem boring, there are things that we are going to discover together that is absolutely going to change your idea of just what God wants from us because the Torah is the story of God and his relationship to man, his chosen vessel for bringing about redemption in the world. So in the beginning, now what I want you to do is I'm going to try over the next few weeks, probably several weeks, is I want you to take your faith, okay? I want you to take your faith and I want you to take my imagination and the way I do things. And I wanna to try to bring those together to give you a more complete understanding of the interaction between God and his creation. So the very first place we must start, cowboys, is I want you to do your own imagining for just a second. And I'm gonna ask you to imagine a specific thing. I want you to, whether you close your eyes or not, I suggest it, that's what I'm doing. I'm not gonna walk around, that's why I'm holding on. <laughs> I want you to picture, I want you to try to imagine the most powerful thing you can imagine. An entity that just with his spoken word can create all things. It is an in comprehensible power for one being to make our star, to make our galaxy, to make our universe, and not just ours, but all of them, right? This incomprehensible power. And within this incomprehensible power, what he did, let's just say that I asked you to go anywhere on earth, and I don't care if it's under the sea, on a beach, in a pasture somewhere, I want you to find one grain of sand, okay? That is what we are in God's creation. We are one speck of sand because in everything he created, possibly trillions of, not trillions of universes, not just galaxies, but I mean, all of this stuff, right? Galaxy after galaxy after galaxy and planet and stars. Galaxies are made up of billions of stars and he made every one and he, the Bible says he calls them by name. See, we have grown so familiar with God that we have lost his majesty. Listen, on one speck of dirt, on one planet, in one solar system, in one galaxy, in one universe, the incomprehensibility of him choosing us is incomprehensible, okay? Is incomprehensible. And and on this planet, he did something different than every other planet. And it doesn't have anything to do with water or air or anything like that. See, our planet that he made, that he chose, has life. And life can only come, I don't care what your textbooks say, I don't care anything, the only thing that can get life is the breath of God, 
right? It's the breath of God. And how do we, how does God define life? He makes it where something can come from nothing. Something that can come from nothing. Two people can create new life because of the breath of God that was breathed in them. But what makes, what makes man so special, right? What makes man so special? I actually had this little illustration that I wanted to do with somebody, but I thought it might take too long. So I'm gonna tell you what I would want them to say. Imagine if I brought a, bo uh, a box of rocks and I asked Roger to come up here and I said, Roger, pick one of these rocks. He's gonna rifle through and he's gonna go based on what? I don't care, just, just pick a rock. Pick one that you like. So he's gonna pick one of these rocks. I'm gonna say, why did you pick that? He's, I don't know. Well, there's gotta be a reason why. Give me some reasons why you would have picked this rock. And he's gonna give me some reasons and I'm gonna keep asking him, but why? But why? And eventually he's gonna say what? I don't know, right? But what if you could know, okay? What if you could know that, that the reason you like that rock was something in your childhood that you don't even remember? What if you could know, if you, if you grasped the entire knowledge, if you were so self-aware that you could understand exactly why you picked that rock? Did you know that you would still pick it even without all that knowledge? You would, because here's, here's what we must learn. And this happens time over time over time, because what I'm gonna be emphasizing on is these repeatable patterns that happen all over scripture, even up until today. Because you see, it doesn't matter if it's a rock. It doesn't matter if it's one specific animal in all of creation, one, one specific animal that's created in the image of God, male and female, right? But see, here's the deal. It doesn't matter if God picks Adam. It doesn't matter if God picks Noah. It doesn't matter if God picks Saul or David or Solomon or anybody else, Abraham, anything. See, we so focus on why the person was chosen that we forget that the beauty is not in the chosen, but the fact that, you, that the chooser chose us we don't we, we there's no reason god would choose such sinful clay jars that are so fragile and so easily swayed but he does he chooses us because there's something about us that he loves and we don't have to understand everything we're never going to be perfect he leads us and he guides us and so when we see that god chooses people we can't just fall into well what made him special what made him special was the fact that there was nothing special about him except that God chose him. And the same applies to you today. So you wouldn't be sitting here today if God didn't have a plan for you. And, and, and in, in Jeremiah, while they were talking about the exiles, right, because we learned that, Jeremiah did say that for God's people that he has a plan for us and it's a good plan right? So we must understand two things. The immensity of the God that we serve. Listen, if he got tired of us, he wouldn't have to use a flood. He'd just say, do not exist anymore. And we would all, everything in creation would just vanish, right? The immense, uncomprehendable power of God. And then what he does with this one human, and by the way, man in Hebrew do you know what it is? 
Sure you do. Adam. Adam means man in Hebrew, okay? Eve means something else. It does not mean woman. It help her, something like that. So anyway, <laughs> yeah, or something like that, right? Uh, they, not the point, right? Not the point. Yeah, yeah. And right now we're going to learn about giving preachers grace, right? Because that's a very important of God's plan. Yes, yes. Send, send, send your complaints to Ty at SaveTheCowboy.com. He doesn't check it anyway. And so, uh, but see, when he created man in his image, he gave them something that had never existed before in all mankind, all human history, a thing called free will. Free will. You, you can actually do whatever you want to do. You can do that. But see, the, by very definition of free will, there has to be a choice. Because if I put you in a room and I said, you can have anything to eat in this room. You can have anything to eat, but I just gave you Cheetos. That's not a choice, right? There has to be two things. And so God, in his infinite wisdom, he creates man and he creates woman and he calls his creation good. And in this creation, in this creation, he offers a choice. He says, listen, you can have everything on this planet except the fruit off of that tree. And Adam says, Great, great. In Genesis chapter two, verse 15, we see the first contract between man and God. The Bible will call these contracts covenants. You can think of them as a ranch lease, right? You can, you can have the lease to this ranch and you can reside on this ranch if you abide by these terms of a pasture lease or a ranch lease, or you might call it a contract or a covenant. And here was the covenant, here was the contract. And notice I said this is a contract between God and Adam. I did not say it was a contract between God and Eve, right? What God always offers is an unconditional title to the land with a conditional residence, okay? Now you have to understand, we think in terms of ownership, like if I own something, nobody else owns it. But see, in God's world, he owns everything. He just allows us the use of part of his kingdom. And he offers it like, listen, I'm gonna give it to you for all time where you can use it, but if you don't abide by the rules, you don't get to stay on it. It will be yours for all time, but while that is unconditional, the residency or the domicility, the domicile where you reside is conditional. And this is found in Genesis chapter two, verses 15 through 17. The Lord God placed the man in the garden of Eden to tend and watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, you may, eat, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden except the tree of knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. Now, why did I say he gave the contract to Adam and not Eve? Because that's Genesis, Genesis uh, 2, 15 and 17. You wanna know what Genesis 2, 18 says? And then God caused Adam to fall into a sleep and he took a rib from Eve and he made a woman. Eve wasn't, didn't even exist during this covenant. Okay, during the signing of the agreement, 
Eve didn't exist, okay? But now, now that Eve is there, he gives her a tour of the garden. He's like, hey, man, look at all this. God lets us sit here. And, and listen, until the flood, the Bible says this about the flood in Genesis chapter uh, 11, right? That one of the things that the new, a, a different contract that he makes, because God wiped everything out, so he has to make a new contract with Noah, and we'll discuss this later, is that, now, and God says it, now, not before, now I will put enmity between you and the animals. Now I will put enmity between you and the animals and they will fear you and they will attack you. Before that, it never happened. That there was no such thing as an animal attacking a human, right? It didn't happen because there was peace on earth, right? And until Noah. Okay, so Adam and Eve are walking through the garden. He's like, man, look at, we have everything. We have everything. And they're walking by and, and in the middle of the garden is the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And they can eat from any tree in the garden, even that one. But he said, don't eat fruit off of that. And so Adam tells Eve, we ain't supposed to eat that. And she says, well, what is it? And he says, I don't know. I just know that we're not supposed to eat it. And she goes, well, don't you think we should know? And he's like, I don't care what it is because we have all of this. And she goes, but I want to know that. And he's like, you're going to make me go ask God, aren't you? And she said, yes. <laughs> and while that is not recorded deep in your soul, you know that's how it happened. You know exactly that that's what happened. And so so Adam, being the good husband, being the leader of his family, does exactly that. He marches over there and he finds God making a platypus or something. I don't know. He's like, hey, God. He's like, hey, Adam. He's like, what's in that tree? And here it comes. Here it comes, guys. God, I believe... This is my own interpretation. And it's for our benefit, not making something happen in the Bible that didn't happen, okay? This is an imagination deal. But I believe that if God did explain it to Adam, he explained it something like this. See, Adam, that tree and its fruit, that fruit embodies everything that you will never want, ultimately, and you'll never need anything in that fruit will never be of benefit to you. As a matter of fact, the fruit on that tree takes things away from you. It doesn't grant anything. He said, but I don't understand what it is. And he couldn't understand because it's the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He couldn't understand it. And so God is trying to explain things. And if you'll think about your life, this is gonna make sense. God was trying to explain things that Adam didn't understand. Just like a lot of times you wonder why things are going, are happening in your life that you don't understand, right? And so what is in the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? I think God would kind of answer it this way. At its very least, it is everything that will have no benefit to you at all. In essence, it's everything that you'll never need. At its most basic though, that, that's at its most benign. It, it's just something, there's nothing in there that will ever bring you anything. It will only take away, right? At its most basic 
what was tied up in that tree was pain. And in its ultimate fulfillment, it's death. The end of all things, separation from God. Separation of all of that. But then Adam might say, but God, I, I, I still don't quite understand. What are these things? Pain and death. And then God utters the same words to Adam that he will repeat over and over and over to all of the major Bible characters, all the minor Bible characters, every person that has ever lived right at this point, God requires something of his creation. And when Adam says, I don't understand why this is bad for me, God introduces the concept of faith and he says, you're just going to have to trust me, Adam. That's what it boils down to. You're going to have to trust that, that I have the knowledge and I've said stay away from this because it will bring you nothing. It, it's, a, it's a spiritual diuretic. Whatever you take in, more leaves. And that is the story of us over and over and over and over and over is that we don't understand the incomprehensibility of God and we don't trust him. We have to go pee on the electric fence. <laughs> right? We do that. Adam, you'll have to trust me. It's everything you'll never need or ultimately ever want. And here's the, here's the kicker. It's nothing you'll, you'll ever need. And ultimately, none of those things will be of what you wanted. And, and Adam, in that tree is nothing I want for you. And in that tree is something that I don't want you to ever have. And the same still applies today. The same still applies today. God says, hey man, y'all stay out of that stuff. See, God has given us, and I want you to keep this in mind through this whole thing. God has given us freedom, okay? Within a framework. We might call it a pasture fence or a ranch fence. He says, listen, you can have, you can have and do anything you want to within these fences. But see, most of us, most of us, what happens when you turn cattle out into new pastures? What do they do? They walk the fence, don't they? And see, most Christians spend their entire lives inside God's kingdom, but looking over the fence. And sometimes they jump over it and sometimes they jump back in. But see, when you have that much traffic of bazillion years, there, there's nothing that grows along the fences because that's where everybody walks. And what nobody seems to understand, and I want you to grasp this because it will change your entire life, is that that framework, that fence, he says, I am, Jesus said, I am the narrow gate. This is how you get into the pasture, right? The inside is bigger than the outside. I want you to think about that. See, the framework that God puts us in, the inside is bigger than the outside. And we think because there's a fence there that God is withholding something from us and he doesn't. And we spend our lives looking over that fence, longing for what we think is greener pastures because there's things out there, outside, that aren't inside. 
And there's a reason that they're from the outside. It's because at its very least, it will just take something from you. At its most basic, it's pain. And, it's, and, and all of those things and the ultimate fulfillment of those things is death and separation from God. The inside is bigger than the outside. And if you want to truly experience the love of God, you got to get away from the fence and go to the inside. And you can only do that through faith and obedience to God. And we must trust that that fence is there for a reason. It used to be, it used to be in a fruit. It was contained there. Now, it's contained outside of God's plan. It's outside of God's plan. So Adam goes back to Eve after his conversation with God, and he doesn't know what to say because he knows that he's going to say, well, this is what God said, and she's going to ask a question that he didn't think to ask, right? So he goes back, and he thinks that the, the, the smartest answer is the answer that God gave. And so he walks back, and she goes, did you find out why we're not supposed to eat it? And he goes, yeah, I did. She goes, what is it? And she goes, he said, Eve, you're just going to have to trust me. And she goes, what did he say? And he said, well, he said, it's everything we'll never need. Well, what is it? Well, I don't know. Well, why didn't you ask him what it was? Because I didn't think to ask him what it was. Well, how, what, what is death? I, I re he tried to explain it to me, but I don't know. Well, didn't you try to understand? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you know it happened like that, right? <laughs> and so they're walking. Adam is oblivious to everything, right? Eve is consumed with questions. And they happen to go by this tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And there's a snaky fella standing there. I picture him kind of like Curly Bill Brocious from Tombstone. You know, like when they pull up and he looks at, he looks at one of the Earp boys and he goes, well, bye. You remember that part? That's what I picture this snaky fellow looking like standing by the, by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And he asks, y'all want some of this? And Eve, she said, God said we weren't supposed to eat that. And this snaky fella says, what did God say you couldn't or shouldn't? Either way, he's holding the best part of life back from you. Understanding. Pervert the word of God. You think about this. What is a satanic symbol? An upside down what? Cross, right? See, the devil can't come up with his own symbol. He has to use something that God has and pervert it. Think about the stars. Jesus says, I am the morning star. What do they do with stars? They turn them upside down, right? And what do they put inside? They put a goat's head inside. Why do they do that? Because at the end, there will be a separation of sheep and goats. And the devil is trying to glamorize the perversion of God's word and we fall for it every time. We fall for it every time. Either way, he's holding back the best part from you, knowledge and understanding. And you can eat this. And if you eat it, you will have understanding. And Eve ate it. 
And that wasn't the problem. Eve didn't even exist when God told them not to eat that. But make no mistake, Adam was standing there. He was put in total command under God of the entire planet, especially the Garden of Eden. And he didn't stop Eve. And what happens next is the cosmic battle. It's why it's so hard to live on this earth. That's why it's so hard to be married because see, they ate it and their eyes were open to what death is, to what pain is, to what shame and guilt is. And what comes next is the downward spiral of broken contracts and the first sacrifice ever made. And you have to understand this sacrifice before you can understand all the other sacrifices leading to the final one, which was Jesus Christ on the cross. And it says that while Adam and Eve took fig leaves to cover their nakedness, God came and killed animals and made them skins out of its flesh. That was the first sacrifice because in Romans chapter six, verse 23, the apostle Paul explains that. He says, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of life is through Jesus Christ, through Christ Jesus, right? See, for sin, sin always results in death. Something has to die to make up for your sin. There's no way around it. There's no ands, ifs, or buts. So for the first time, because Adam and Eve, or Adam sinned against God, but Eve sinned against Adam because Adam relayed the message of God, right? So they were both punished and life gets really hard and we see the first consequences of sin because sin, what does it do? It always removes, it never adds. So while they were still, mankind still had dominion over the earth, the contract changed and they could no longer reside there and they are kicked out of the garden. A mighty seraphim, and we talked about that in our study on Ezekiel, right? A mighty seraphim with flaming sword now guards the entrance to the Garden of Eden and nobody can go back in. Nobody can go back in. When rebellion happens, we lose some of what gives what God gives us, the goodness that God gives, and our lives get more difficult. Did you hear what I said? When sin is involved, we lose the good, some of the good that God gives us, and our lives get more difficult. They still had the world, just not the best part of it. And now we fast forward and, and we understand that the biblical narrative now is, is like Cain and Abel. And now, now we have our first murder and the consequences of that. And, and God banishes Cain out into the world with a mark on his head that nobody can harm him. And he has to live with this guilt. And I don't really understand it. Nobody really does. There's lots of theories and conjectures, but we just know he was marked by God and he was not a very good man. But the downward spiral continues. See, it wasn't just Adam and Eve. Now sin has, has been set free. It's like a virus that went out. And while we, we have things that can wash us clean where we don't get sick from this virus of sin, the fact that it passes down from generation to generation is apparent. So the downward spiral continues until one day, 
God saves one man and his family and some animals before ridding the world of the sinfulness of man. And once again, when we look at Noah, we see the beauty is not in Noah's life, but the fact that God chose him for something special, just like he chooses every single one of us for something special. So God makes a new contract with Noah, stating that Noah can eat animals now. Did you see that? Before, there was no animal enmity and they didn't eat animals, right? That he says, now you can eat animals as long as there's no blood in it because the life is in the blood, is what the Bible says, and animals will now fear mankind. He tells Noah to be fruitful and multiply and take dominion once again over the earth. So what does Noah do? This man chosen by God. First thing he does is plants a vineyard, makes some grapes, grows some grapes, and makes him some hooch. Right? That's what he did. I mean, here's the most righteous man that God could find, saves the world through him, and one of the first things the Bible records is he plants a vineyard, grows some grapes, makes some hooch, gets naked, and passes out drunk in his tent. Wow. Way to go, Noah. <laughs> Just like us, right? And then something crazy, crazy happens because we live in a sinful world. And remember what I said when we sin? And, and, and listen, God, God, Noah knew that that wasn't right. Noah's naked in his tent. And, and, and we're not sure exactly what happens, but what happens is that Ham's son, who Ham is one of Noah's three kids, and it results in Ham's son, Canaan. You ever heard that, that name before, Canaan? The Holy Land, Canaan. Canaan is cursed. Now, there's a lot of different theories on it, but, but one made sense more than anything else to me. There's only six people on the entire earth, right? Only six people. And it says that Ham sinned because he saw his father's nakedness. But there's another place in, in, in the Bible that, that says that seeing your father's nakedness means sleeping with your father's wife or concubine. Okay, that's seeing your father's nakedness, something that only he should see, you should see. And so some people think that Ham went in and raped his mother. Okay, that and the resulting child from that was Canaan, right? Which was actually Ham's son, but it was Noah's wife's son as well. And he is cursed because of that. Now that's just one explanation. There's other explanations out there. And to be honest with you, we really don't know. We really don't know. But we do know that Ham, Noah's son is the one that messed up and his son, Canaan, he had many more sons. His son, Canaan was um, cursed. So Ham, son, Canaan is cursed. I believe I've never read it, but I think this is why this is why Jewish people can't eat pork because of ham. <laughs> Thank you. Come back next week for more insight and wisdom from the biblical aspect of things. All right, we're closing up. And now we have something that, okay, so now 
We've had creation, we've had the fall, we've had a downward spiral, we've had a global flood. Six people are saved with some animals and now they're supposed to be fruitful and multiply and rebuild this world, right? And everything. And you remember in Ezra when I said, now comes the aha moment? Did you know that right at this time period in our timeline is when the book of Job was written? The book of Job was written here. And there's a few things that we can learn from the book of Job being the next story after the Noah. And here it is. God was still a part of everyday life, right? Because Job talks about God the entire time, right? I didn't, and, and sin was a, they knew about sin because, because Job's friends kept telling Job, hey man, you must have sinned for this to happen. And Job was like, I didn't though. So there was a knowledge of what sin was and sin was an affront to God, right? It was something that we're not supposed to have. So God still was a big part of everyday life, we can understand, right? In the book of Job, people knew the one true God, right? And sin was not a foreign concept. So the book of Job happens between Noah and the next story in Genesis, which is the Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel. The Tower of Babel in chapter 11, they wanna build a tower to heaven. They wanna build a tower to heaven so that they can be like the, the gods. Once again, they're trying to elevate themselves to God's status and they're using something new. They are using mud-fired bricks for the first time, and they are using pitch found in different parts of the earth as the sealant between those bricks. So why would you use a mud-fired brick and a waterproof sealant? To protect them from another flood. So that God could not wipe them out this time. They thought they had outsmarted God but they didn't realize that God had already said, I'm never gonna destroy the, the earth with flood again. Isn't that kind of like, they did something they didn't have to do, right? But they still wanted the tower. They still wanted the tower. Uh, they were not spreading out, and the Bible explicitly says in Genesis that the people built a tower so that they would not have to leave there and fill the rest of the earth. See, they were supposed to scatter and multiply. That's what Noah said, be fruitful, multiply, and scatter all over the earth. Well, they didn't. They just stayed in one spot and built cities. They were not doing what God told Noah to do. So once again, we have the title. God said, you can stay here, but here's, here's the Here's what I want you to do. You gotta be fruitful and multiply and spread out. They, only, they, were only, they were just fruit flies. They didn't spread out, okay? They were just fruit flies. And so they built the tower and they said this, so that we will not have to go somewhere else. So we, we built, we're building a tower so we can be protected from God making us do what he wants us to do. And I tell you, we've all got those towers in our lives that we're trying to protect our sins so that God won't do anything with it. Over and over and over, these same things repeat. So God threw them a, a curve, right? What did he do? He confused their languages. Now, nobody can understand anybody. And like, listen, 
There's no interpreters, okay? Like, they literally cannot speak each other's languages now, right? So what do they do? They spread out. They take everybody that speaks the same language, for some reason they just, and we know what it is, it's God leading them, they just went, right? But let's back up one chapter to Genesis 10 and we're done. That's the Tower of Babel is in Genesis 10. But in Genesis 11, or that's in Genesis 11, but in Genesis 10 is a really boring chapter if you don't know what to look for. And it's the genealogy of Noah, right? It's the genealogy of Noah. It's anything except boring, especially when talking about end times. Did you know that the genealogy of Noah has something to do with the end times? Countries, because of Noah's kids, Noah's grandkids, okay? Because of Noah's grandkids, the nations are named after them, okay? And here it is. I'm just going to read you a few, okay? Shem was one of his kids. His line will become the Semitic people. The Hebrew people came from Shem, Okay? And it's through that line that, that uh, David will be born. And it's through that line that Jesus will be born. And it's through Jesus that every single one of us are born again. Right? Shem was a Semitic race. His sons were Elam. You'll read about the Elamites in the Bible. Asher, actually the word Assyrian is is that word, Asher. We just say Assyrian. It's based off of Asher, right? And, and, there, and there's more, right? But then Ham, you've got Ham, and he, his kids are Cush, which is Ethiopia, and then you have Havilah, which is Arabia, and then you have Mizraim, which is Egypt, right? And then you have, so, so really Ham is kind of like the, the Middle Eastern race, okay? The Shem's line is the Hebrew people, because remember, they're a race of people. They're not a group of people from different places that, that serve one idea. In its purest form, they're a race of people. And then, so Ham is, is like Muslim people, right? Japheth is, the, is our ancestor if you're Aryan, right? Is the Aryan race. You think of Gomer, was one of his kids. That's the area of Germany, the Celts, right? And then you have, uh, you ever heard the word Magog? Well, if you've read it, if you've read Revelations, you've heard Gog and Magog. Magog was a son, grandson of Noah. And he settled north of the Black Sea in what is Ukraine area in all of Russia. So in the Bible, when you read these names, Gog and Magog and Cush and Mizraim, it has a geographic location attached to it. So it's not just nonsense. It's there for a reason. Magog is Russia. Madai are the Medes. Remember, King Darius was a Mede and a Persian, right? That's where he came from. Java, is the Greeks, and now, and now we've reached the end of where we were going to go today. Next week, we see how God will set aside a ranch, a framework, a physical location,
For a group of people he will call his own and that the plan of redemption for the entire world will begin. It's like 1883 when John Dillard Dutton heads out to find a new land in a rugged wilderness. Our protagonist, a man named Abram, won't find Indians. He will find giants in the land of Canaan and people worshiping other gods. And I pray that you will come back next week to hear the exciting story of love, loss, rebellion, and redemption that happened then and it's still happening today. Let's go to God in prayer. Father, we thank you for who you are. And God, I just ask that you give me the words that, that will be interpreted by the Holy Spirit into truths for these people that are listening. They're here for a reason, God, and that reason is you. We are chosen by you, but it's not because we did anything. It's because you looked down and found something about us that you love and you chose us. People wouldn't be here today without that choosing, without that goodness of God. And I pray that they open their hearts to you, God, at this time and say, God, I wanna let you in. And by letting you in, I wanna go inside your ranch. I wanna be with you for all time not just on this earth, but into eternity. And the gates thrown open wide and the only entry fee that's needed is faith in him and his plan. And God, I pray that somebody will trust in that today. And it's in Jesus Christ's name I pray, amen.